in your notes under Reformed Calvinists, what we were doing is we were looking at the Institutes of Christian Religion, which Calvin produced. This is obviously the English translation. And we were looking at his perspectives on general revelation, perception of God, free will, the corruption of the intellect, repentance, justification by faith, prayer, election. And I have four more I want to just cover. And I, I just find it interesting because when I, when I read his material, I'm like, that's kind of what most of us have been taught. So it's, it's interesting how 500 years later, a, a lot of his language is still present in the way we do church today and many of our beliefs. But in his day and age, some of it was a little bit radical and really was divergent from the Church of Rome. So let's, let's look at his section on major or minor doctrines. So the question is, are all doctrinal matters equal? So are they all equal? What, what should I pick a fight over? What shouldn't I pick a fight over? Should I pick a fight over everything? That's a question that a lot of people wrestle with. And here's what he says. This is on page 236. He says, doctrinal matters are not all of equal importance. Some are essential to Christian faith. For instance, that God is one. So we're monotheists. We're not polytheists. We're not pantheists. We're not panentheists. We're not deists. We're monotheistic theists. So that's kind of important. That Christ is God and the Son of God. That's important. You can't say you're a Christian and deny that Jesus is God or you are a heretic. That our salvation depends on God's mercy and so on. There are other matters which can be controversial but do not destroy the unity of faith. For example... Does it really matter whether one person believes that the soul flies to heaven when it leaves the body or another maintains that all we can know for certain is that it is with the Lord? Interesting. And then down further, he says, I'm not condoning error, however trivial, nor trying to encourage it. I'm trying to say that we should not leave a church because of some minor fault provided it maintains the sound doctrine over essentials and practices the sacraments instituted by the Lord, then we must try to change what is wrong. Well, there's a lot to be said there, which I think resonates with, I think, kind of how I was raised. And that is that when you think about the Christian faith, one helpful way to look at it is to draw circles. So you have circles... The inner circle represents core doctrine. Sometimes we call these fundamentals. Another term that's often been used is a cardinal verity, meaning a cardinal truth. So these are the fundamentals of the faith. And those would include, usually we speak of five or six fundamentals. So we speak of, uh, most of them relate to God or salvation. So we speak of monotheism. We speak of Trinity. 
God is one God, but he's three persons in one God. We, the deity of Christ, of Christ, the um, virgin birth, virgin birth, the second coming, Uh, justification by faith alone and um, sorry yeah like the resurrection yeah there's, I mean, there's all kinds of things around Jesus that we need to kind of put in there yeah the full yeah the resurrection full humanity of Christ I was just thinking there's um there's a way of summarizing it, I think, in like five points, which kind of captures a lot of them. So we have Trinity, deity of Christ, second coming, virgin birth, um, justification by grace of faith, which assumes sin and all that. And uh, resurrection, which really is tied into second coming and both humanity of Christ. So those are things... So someone's got if against the wall and they got a pistol at your head and they're like, deny this or die, then you should say pull the trigger. Now the next ring out are things that Christians genuinely dispute, that if you don't agree on it, makes it really hard to have fellowship in a local church, even though they're not heaven or hell issues. But they're so evident. They're not just, what do you believe about this? You see it all the time in the life of the church, and if you don't agree on these kinds of things then it makes it really, really difficult to function together as a local assembly. So what would be some of those things? We generally call these distinctives, and they're distinctives often connected to denominations or groups. So they would include things like your understanding of eldership or pastoral leadership in the church, those kinds of things. So some churches, there's no elders. Other churches, elders rule the church. Other churches, the elders are the servants of the congregation. Some churches are congregationally led. Some are led by female pastors, some by male-only pastors. So all those things related to leadership, kind of have to agree on those as a local assembly or it's going to be a disaster. So different denominations, some have Episcopal leadership or Presbyterian forms of leadership, which basically is like elder-led. Others are congregational, so it's the, the, the broadest common denominator runs the church. In other settings, a, a, a select group of qualified elders runs the church, or combinations thereof, or obviously issues of egalitarianism and complementarianism. So egalitarianism basically teaches that men and women are not only the same in terms of their function, or in terms of their value as image bearers, in terms of their giftedness, but they're also equal in terms of their function. So in those kinds of churches, any office, any role is open to men or women, and that also applies to life in marriage and in the home. There's, there's no such thing as a head of the home that's co-equal. That's called egalitarianism. Complementarianism teaches that there's total equality in Christ, but there's functional differences. And the husband is the head of the, the home, and only select qualified men lead as elders or pastors in the church. That's called uh, complementarianism, where there's a, they complement 
but there's differences. So that would be something a local church, if you don't agree on that, that that's kind of huge. Issues of baptism. So you have uh, believer's baptism, and you have basically, we call it pedo-baptism, which is baby baptism. So pedo-baptism is for kids, and we have um, believer's baptism. Now, you might say, well, shouldn't that be in the center? No, because there's a lot of people that believe in pedo-baptism that don't believe that that is actually what gets you saved. They're covenant people. They believe in covenant theology. They believe that the child is sealed somehow to the covenant that their parents have made with God. So, you know, I would, I, it would be hard, I, I would have a hard time pastoring a church or being in a church where there's different views, but I obviously acknowledge that there's Presbyterians or Reformed believers that practice uh, pedo baptism that, you know, they're still born again believers. I just disagree with where they're at. Um, there's some that come and go with the passing of time. So end times, especially in the 70s, was huge. Like that totally split churches. If you weren't, if you hadn't, if you didn't have a Schofield study Bible and you were a dispensationalist and pre-trib, pre-mill and all that kind of stuff, you were basically considered not even a Christian in some churches. But everybody has to be united. A core issue is the second coming. This is probably, in our culture, next tier out. But I'm just acknowledging that for some it would be the second tier in. So you would have to hold a very specific view to, allowed, to be allowed to be in a church. In a church like ours, that would be third tier. These would be things of personal conscience that you would believe in that wouldn't necessarily affect the daily life of the church. Now... All of this stuff, okay, you could create a second wheel and talk about philosophy or practice of ministry as well. So you would say, as a church, this, these aren't heaven or hell issues, but these are the core things that we absolutely are going to do. These are things that are not quite as important, but we'd like to see them displayed, and we, we're choosing to do those as a church, and there's things we just don't really care that much about. So for us... You know, vertical worship, expository preaching. Uh, in this category would be small groups, biblical, our biblical soul care model, those kinds of things. Those would be second tier. But in this church, you're not going to really get away with anything but expository preaching. So if you're just preaching topically, you're just, you know, like some, some churches, it's very... They use the text as a springboard to talk about a particular concept. They're not actually teaching you the Bible. That wouldn't go over well, very well here, right? So that's kind of like a core issue in terms of our philosophy of ministry. So you can just think about that. I wonder if we would all agree what the cores are, probably. I wonder if we would all agree what the distinctives are, probably not, because there's people here from different church backgrounds. All right. So I want to talk to you next about his views on preachers. You understand that Calvin was ministering during a period of time when people were reacting to the excesses of the Roman Catholic Church. Where anything the Pope said was, put an equal sign, equal to the Bible. So 
what you actually have there is a difference of opinion on source of authority. That's what you have a difference of opinion on. What's your final source of authority? Protestants were like, this is our final source of authority. The Catholics were like, no, this and the pronouncements of the church together constitute our source of authority. So you had a different of opinion on where you get your information from. So Calvin is in that environment. So he's probably being asked questions like, well, then what, what is the role of the preacher when it comes to authoritative pronouncements in the life of the church? And maybe you've wrestled with this too, because I wrestle with it as a preacher. So when I get up and I say I'm preaching the word of God, what I'm actually doing, I'm opening the word of God, I'm reading it, I'm explaining the meaning, I may be illustrating it, and then I'm offering application. But if I'm up there for 45 minutes, it's not like I'm just reading God's word for 45 minutes. So I'm, I'm starting in the Bible, taking you into the world of the text, helping you to see matters of grace, law, whatever it might be in the text, stepping out of the text, helping you to understand it, stepping even further out of the text, maybe offering illustrations and application, and then stepping back into the text. But the point is, is I'm not actually literally speaking every word from God the whole time I'm preaching. So the question is, how authoritative is preaching? Is preaching only authoritative when the text is being read? And if it is, why don't we just call it Bible reading? So this is qu questions that Christians have wrestled with for a long time. So under a, a heading, call, a chapter called The Teachers and Ministers of the Church, Their Election and Office, he says, I'm now going to speak of the Lord's pattern for church government. It is obviously right that he alone should rule in the church and be seen to do so. Its ordering should be admi administered by his word alone. So he's just pointing people to God, right? Ultimately, it's of God. But he goes on to say, but because he does not live among us physically, and he references Matthew 26, 11, to make his will clear from his own lips, he uses the ministry of men, making them his substitutes. He does not transfer his rights and honor to them, but does his work through them as any workman would use a tool for his purpose. I'm like, that's great. That's kind of what I was taught about preaching too. So the preacher's a conduit. So the preacher's thinking, the preacher's assessing, the preacher's studying, the preacher's trying to understand his people, and then the preacher is preaching the word of God into the occasion within which we live. So every act of preaching really is an occasional act. There's some guys that think of themselves as total purists, and I don't think they would ever acknowledge that. They make me a little nervous. They're, they think that they're just absolutely expositing the text, and that's where they're leaving it. There's, every preacher needs to acknowledge that he is in the sermon, too. There's elements of Aaron Rock in the sermon, or Chris Heelman in the sermon. Whoever's preaching, there's elements of you in the sermon. And there's elements of God, hopefully, in the sermon as well, helping people to see the word of God. The second from final category I want to talk about is church discipline. And um, I don't know what, what your background is in terms of church discipline, but church discipline is something that's really important in the life of the church. It's seldom practiced um, because of fear 
because it's hard, because it's incredibly distracting, because sometimes you feel like you get a plank in your own eye and all that kind of stuff. But a couple things that Calvin said about church discipline, and he says a lot about it. I'm just going to read a couple comments. He says, all who want to get rid of discipline will bring about the downfall of the church. And he uses the church with a capital C, the whole church. What would happen if everyone was allowed to do whatever he liked, he asks. Down further, he kind of lays out the process. So I've just put some numbers here down. Number one, which is actually the second point. The first basis of church discipline is private rebuke. So he talks about that. You go to the, we know that from Matthew chapter 18. You go to the person and have the conversation. Another distinction we must look at is that some sins are merely lapses and others are deliberate crimes. That's really an important important distinctive, and I think it's also a great uh, insight into his pastoral capabilities. When you are confronting another person, you should ask, is this like a deliberate, heinous act, or is it more a lapse, something based on ignorance? Those of you that are parents, you probably know that. But not every stupid thing your child does is necessarily deliberate but some are. Others are lapses, and you discipline differently in those situations. The second purpose of discipline is so that good people may not be affected by regular contact with the wicked. It's really interesting. Some would deny, you know, people that are experts in sociology and have never read the Bible would probably say, oh, it doesn't have any effect. Well, apparently it does. Um, Wheat and chaff, when they're mixed together, are a problem. Goats and sheep, when they're mixed together, are a problem. Those are biblical images. So he says the second purpose of church discipline is so that good people may not be affected by regular contact with the wicked. Third, a third result of discipline is that the sinner may feel ashamed and repent of his error. So these are just headings to different paragraphs he's written. And then finally, at the bottom here, quoting from 1 Corinthians 5, 5, he gave him over temporary to temporal punishment so that he might be saved eternally. He gave him over to Satan because he is outside the church just as Christ is in the church. So you probably read that passage that says turn him over to Satan. The idea there is not, well, you've lost your eternal salvation, although it may indicate that you're not truly saved if you never repent. But it's like, well, have fun with the devil for a while. See how much fun it is really living for him. Christ's presence dwells in a special way in the church. Now, Satan can also be in the church, but Christ's presence dwells in a special way in the church. Christ is also in the world, but Satan's presence dwells especially in the world. So when you excommunicate someone and you turn them over to Satan, you're basically saying, okay, let him be your boss for all. See how that works out. So there's some good insights there, which we would obviously want to practice in our church as well. And the final thing I wanted to comment on is his views on baptism. So this is where we would have uh, some divergency from Calvin, probably in, well, certainly in our church and some of the churches you come from, uh, because in the Reformed tradition, baptism was not necessarily tied to believers, as it would be in Anabaptism or in um, some of the earlier forms of Lutheranism, those kinds of things, mostly in the Anabaptist movement. A couple comments. 
when he speaks of baptism. He says, baptism is a sign of cleansing that our sins have been completely wiped out and God will never refer to them again. So notice he uses the word sign. That's different than what we read several weeks ago to the Roman Catholic Catechism, which speaks of baptism being the means of receiving your justification. So reformers often speak of signs and seals. It's, it's picturing something and it's sealing you to some covenant that's been made perhaps by your parents, for example. It is his will that all who, have been, all who have believed should be baptized for the remission of sins. Those who see baptism only as a confession of our faith have missed the main point. So that sounds like baptismal regeneration, but that would not be fair to accuse Calvin of that. There's sort of a middle place he finds himself in. So he says, again, it is his will that all who have believed should be baptized for the remission of sins. Those who see baptism only as a confession, which would be mostly Baptists, it's just a confession. It's just a, uh, a, a, a profession or a pronouncement. He says, have missed the main point. Baptism is tied to the promise of forgiveness. He quotes Mark 16, 16. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. Now, further down, he says, he saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal of the Holy Spirit, Titus 3, 5. Peter also says that baptism now, also, now saves you also, 1 Peter 3, 21. He did not mean to suggest, listen carefully, that our baptism is perfected, sorry, that our salvation is perfected by water, or that water possesses in itself the quality of rebirth, nor does he mean that baptism is the cause of salvation, which everything he said up to now sounds like. But he's saying, that's not what I'm saying. Only that certainty of it is received through this sacrament. The word used, the words used bear this out. So remember we had this conversation with the Lord's Supper in presence. In Reformed theology, on, on one side, you have Roman Catholic teaching, which says baptism or communion of the other sacraments does something to you. It gives you grace. Memorialists say, no, it just pictures something. So the Lord's Supper just pictures something. It, or baptism just pictures something. But Reformed theology is in the middle in this regard. And they would say that the presence of Christ descends and is present in that event. So this is why when they speak of baptism, for example, because Christ is present in your baptism, they would say, it's neither this nor this. It's not this, but it's certainly more than this. Your salvation becomes real to you in your baptism because Christ's presence descends upon you and is manifested in your life in that event. And then they would apply that same thinking to the Lord's Supper. And that, which is an ongoing ordinance, not a one-time one like baptism. It's an ongoing ordinance where every time you partake, the presence of Christ is made real to you. So that's, that's his thinking on this uh, subject. And I'll read one additional <clears throat> quote. Many people believe that forgiveness, which, he, which we received when we were born again by baptism alone, is after baptism gained by penitence and the church's power to forgive. 
This error arises because such people do not realize that baptism and the power to forgive are inextricably linked. The sinner receives forgiveness by the ministry of the church, that is the preaching of the gospel. Through it, we learn that we are washed from sin by the blood of Christ. Baptism is the symbol of this. Forgiveness is linked with baptism. So again, maybe not a view that many of you are super comfortable with or have been raised with, but that's how he sees it. That because Christ's presence is manifest through the sacrament of baptism or the Lord's Supper, there is a special sense in which you partake in his literal presence in that process. And then a couple comments just to conclude the book on infant baptism. Now he says how it accords with Christ's teaching and the nature of baptism. And this is where, looking around the room, probably the vast majority of us would strongly disagree. He says, before the institution of baptism, the people of God had circumcision in its place. The two signs resemble each other, but also have differences. When the Lord told Abraham to observe circumcision, he promised that he would be a God to him and his seed. And then down further, a spiritual promise was given to the fathers in circumcision, similar to that given to us in baptism, since it illustrated the forgiveness of sins and the putting to death of the flesh. So in Reformed theology or covenant, so if you come out of a a Christian Reformed background, you probably already know that, that uh, Reformers see baptism essentially as a replacement of circumcision. So just as a baby was circumcised, a baby boy was circumcised in the eighth day to be joined to the covenant promise through his father, through Abraham, so baptism is a replacement of that. Now, I think there's something to be said for his previous comments about God's presence in baptism. I think we can be charitable on that. I think this argument is ridiculous. And the reason why I think it's ridiculous is because, first of all, you're taking one custom that's gender-specific and involves males only and is a sign and symbol of a physical, physical covenant made to a specific male named Abraham and his physical descendants. And that covenant involved a lot of physical promises, land, security, long life, fertility, those kinds of things. It didn't diminish the eternal dimension, but it certainly pointed to God's covenant promises being fulfilled in the temporal world. And believer's baptism which involves men and women, so I'm not sure what you do with that because there's believing men, women and men in the Old Covenant. There's believing men and women in the New Covenant. God didn't go from a complementarian to an egalitarian as best as I could read from Old Covenant to New Covenant. I, I just know of no verse in the Bible that makes any connection between water baptism. Water baptism is always connected in some way to identifying with Christ's death, burial, and resurrection in some way, shape, or form. It's always tied to that. And it is tied to identification. So we have the Ethiopian eunuch being baptized, or others being baptized, the Philippian jailer and his household being baptized upon profession of their faith. So I just, I, I just think it's a stretch to try to make a connection between uh, infant baptism and uh, circumcision. Nevertheless, now you know what Calvin believes on all main and important matters.
Okay, any questions about that? Otherwise, we're going to move into the English church. Any questions about Calvinism or Reformed theology? Maybe things that have been rattling around in your head even the last couple of weeks you want some clarification on? Show of hands, who believes in election? No. <laughs> All right. So... We're going to talk tonight about the English church. And if you look at the little bubbles I put up there, we started off with the Lutherans. The Lutherans obviously influenced the Reformed Calvinists, and they influenced them in return. The Reformers influenced the Anabaptists, and the Anabaptists influenced the Reformers. Anabaptists and Lutherans didn't hang out quite as much, but there was some of that. You could draw a line there too if you want. And then we have this other group over here called the Anglicans, which are influenced by the Anabaptists, the Lutherans, and the Reformers. They're all influencing each other. But what I find really interesting is that all of these groups essentially rose up in the 1500s under different circumstances, in different places. There was influence and overlap, but a lot of the cultural and political things that were going on in Europe at the time were all kind of coming to a head and those of us that are Protestants would look back and say, hey, God was using all of those different circumstances to stir people here, 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 and here. Now, you've probably caught on to the fact that by now, or by now you've probably caught on to the fact that virtually all of the leaders or several of the main leaders of these groups are people you probably wouldn't want in your church today. Because they had a lot of baggage, a lot of strange views, and it's taken 500 years of church history to weed a lot of that garbage out. So we have these guys early on killing people, these guys killing people, these guys killing people, these guys killing people, for their faith, political maneuvering, political wrangling, all all kinds of very carnal, godless things going on in the process of reforming the church. Now, but out of these four groups, the one that was most driven by political considerations, hands down, was the English church. It was forged in the most, shall we just say, godless motives. Now, some good things happened as a result of that. Lives were changed, people got saved, and all that. But I think you're going to be surprised, if you've never studied this before, to know why the English church or the Anglican church came about as a result of some pretty nasty stuff. So we're calling this the Anglo-Reformation. So we're limiting this essentially to England. Scotland was in on it too later on. But it starts with a very kind-hearted, loving man by the name of King Henry VIII. Heard of him? When you hear a story, the women in particular are just going to gravitate toward him. Wish that their husbands were more like him. So King Henry VIII. What's that? Yeah. Okay. 
So we're going to talk about some of the events leading up. So again, very political. So we just got to talk a lot about politics tonight, some of the things that were going on in England at the time and personalities and circumstances. So King Henry VIII, he reigned from 1509 to 1547. So where does that place him? Right in the middle of the Reformation, exactly. And he married a woman by the name of Catherine of Aragon, and she bore him a daughter, and then another daughter, and then another daughter, and no son. Now, a kind historian would say, a kind non-Christian historian would say, well, they didn't have a good relationship, and he fell in love with one of his ladies-in-waiting, and it was true love, and his relationship with Catherine wasn't great. So understandably, you know, life is short, and you might as well be with the person that you love. So he was trying to figure out how to get out of one marriage and get, in, get into another. It's kind of garbage, because as king, he could mess around with any woman he wanted, and he certainly did. So he didn't have to have a marriage certificate to do it, and no one was going to call him out on it. But what was going on in his mind were really issues of succession. That was the political motivator, because succession is so tied to legacy, right? Especially as you get older, if you don't have a succession, uh, a successor that comes from your body. I mean, someone might pour arsenic in your wine one night, that's the end of you. So knowing that you have a successor and someone's going to get back at you, if you do that to daddy, that's important. And then there's just the whole human notion of, I want my offspring to rule in my place. And it would have been legal for them to have one of his daughters uh, reign. In fact, later two of his daughters did. But um, because of some problems in the past, it was much more preferential for one of his sons to reign. And it would have just put him in a lot better place to have a son. So Catherine couldn't produce a son for him. So he writes to the Pope in Rome. And again, no separation of church and state. We got that one down, right? So he writes to the Pope in Rome and explains his circumstances and basically says, I, I, want, I want an out. Now, most historians believe that the Pope would have given him an out on biblical grounds. Talk about that momentarily. But there was another political problem. And that is that Catherine was the aunt of the Roman emperor at the time who was the king of Spain, Charles V, the Roman emperor. And that would have caused problems with the pope and the emperor if he had allowed Henry up in England to annul his marriage. So that was a problem. Now, the next thing then that Henry argued for is that his marriage was biblically uh, illegitimate. So you need to find your way to... Leviticus 20, verse 21. What does it say there? Leviticus 20, 21. What's it talking about? If a man takes his brother's wife, it's an impurity. Because he has covered his brother's nakedness, they shall be childless. Well, as circumstances would have it, 
Catherine used to be married to his brother. So a special papal dispensation had to be issued for them to get married in the first place because he wanted to marry her. But now he, he thought, well, maybe my marriage with her is cursed, and that's why I'm well, he's not really childless, but I don't have a son. So he uses that to try to lobby the pope to declare his marriage null and void. Rome refuses. So now he has a problem. And he wasn't the kindest of men. There was some pretty nasty language used to describe him by his contemporaries and historians that wrote about him uh, thereafter. So he, at this point, was desperate to marry a woman by the name of Anne of Boilain, or Boilin, B-O-L-E-Y-N. Now, she was a lady-in-waiting. You've probably seen enough movies to know the queen's always got her little entourage around her. She was one of the ladies-in-waiting to Catherine, and he was fixated on her. He was in lust with her, if you want to call it that. Uh, desperately wanted to be with her, and Thomas Cranmer was a nobleman in England at the time. And Cranmer suggested that Henry should forward this issue of theological debate to the scholars of the university. So he gladly forwarded the case to the scholars at Cambridge. Now, in Cambridge at the time, there was an inn called the Inn of the White Horse, White Horse Inn, and guys would get together and they would dialogue about theological issues, and there was a lot of guys in that discussion group that were studying and very keen on Lutheranism at the time. So he forwarded it to them and found very little, didn't really get the thumbs up, but found very little opposition to these university men who were not super happy with Rome anyway, were sort of dabbling in Protestant theology, in particular in Lutheranism. I wouldn't say they were Lutherans, because that wasn't really allowed. But the point is they were sympathetic to the Protestants to the point that they weren't super happy with the Pope. So again, you have political uh, discussions going on there that would influence the church eventually. So what happened in January of 1533, actually in May of 1533, those scholars got together and declared the marriage officially void. That's May of 1533. But Henry had already secretly married Anne in January of 1533. So he'd already got his way, and a short nine months, eight and a half months later, supposedly born slightly premature, uh, Elizabeth was born. So there may have been some motives that you can piece together as an adult as to why he got married maybe a little earlier. So now that he had gone against the Pope, Henry basically left with no choice. He had to break from the Pope. So he found an old law from like a hundred years earlier, some obscure law that no one really knew about anymore, that basically said uh, an English monarch cannot have dealings with a foreign power. It's like, well, the Vatican's a foreign power, so I can't have dealings with them. So what he did was he used this in his favor, and he declared 
This is where the word comes from. In Latin, the Anglicana Ecclesia, the English church, we now know as the Anglican church or the Church of England, to be the official church of England. So this happened in 1534. 1534. He'd married in January of 1533. He got his official pronouncement some months after. So by the next year, he declares the Anglican Church to be the official church of England through something called the Act of Supremacy. So this is like the name of the, the legal act. That, that now becomes the law of the land. And unlike monarchs today, I think there's only two monarchs in the world that actually still, well, two monarchs in Europe that still have what we would call government capabilities. Monaco, another little country like Liechtenstein or whatever it's called, something like that. So two little countries in Europe where their king or prince actually helps to govern the country. Everything else is just a figurehead, right? And in uh, Europe today. Middle East is different. Some Asian countries still allow their kings or princes to govern. Different scenario than it is today where the queen is just a figurehead. Back then he could make law and it was law. So he declares this new church to be constituted. What is his role in the church? Well, conveniently, he becomes the head of the church. When I say the church, I'm talking about the National Church of England. Okay? So the Anglicana Ecclesia. He's the head of the church, but he's not a priest. So he's not a priest. His job as the head of the church is to appoint an archbishop. But it's the archbishop then that ordains and recognizes priests. But the archbishop is accountable, not to a pope or a cardinal, but to the king. So you can understand there's, unlike in a lot of European countries in order to separate church and state, the Anglican church uniquely kept the church very tied to the state, but for the first time had a, what you would call a secular ruler as the head of the church. At least in Rome, the head of the church was also committed to the doctrine of the Roman Catholic Church. So this is just a very different situation. Now, if you were in Henry VIII's position, maybe a good candidate for archbishop would be Thomas Cramner. Think so? Because after all, he was the genius that came up with the idea of sending the issue over to the scholars at Cambridge. And lo and behold, Cramner becomes the archbishop, the first archbishop of the Anglican Church. All right. So the next question is, what difference did it make? Obviously, he got his wife, dismisses one gets the girl he wants, 
What difference did it make? Now, this is where what we're going to talk about today is going to be really helpful for you to understand churches and how they function today. Essentially, the Anglicana Ecclesia, in terms of its doctrine, stays exactly the same as the Roman Catholic Church. So the Roman Catholic Church, this is early on. Things have changed since. But early on, it's the same. Same sacraments, um, same beliefs about purgatory, all that kind of stuff. It's all the same. Except for two practical issues change. And these practical issues have significant long-term effects on doctrine. They're not doctrinal, really, but there's two reforms that he initially brings about. One relates to monasteries. So monasteries filled with monastic orders, monks. The average monk was chaste, was poor, taken a vow of poverty. And because there was no social security net and culture was innately religious and people didn't always inherit land, a lot of people went into religious orders and lived in monasteries. So there was a ton of monasteries and a ton of monastic orders and a ton of monks. But the sentiment on the street was that these guys are kind of leeches. Like they're always knocking on the door. We need food. We're poor. They're always coming around for stuff. They've diminished the tax base because they're living in all kinds of tax-free buildings across the realm. So he decides that he's going to give better options to the, the monks. And basically through several political maneuvers, he successfully... Uh, encourages about 50% of the monks to go into secular life. They get pensions and all that kind of stuff. Leave the monasteries, go into secular life. So there's still several around. What this does now is he has a whole whack load of property to sell off. All these vacant monasteries. He can give them away as gifts to people that are politically on his side. He can sell them off, and he's able to build up the financial resources of the country very quickly. Genius political move. Coffers are full. Now you can fight battles. And now you can do something else. You can pay for things like an English Bible. So the second thing that he does is he opens a door for an English Bible. Up to this point, and really up to the 1940s, the Roman Catholic Church is using the Latin Vulgate. So the Latin Vulgate was an ancient translation of the Bible from, mostly from Greek, Greek New Testament, a Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. A man by the name of Jerome translated this. I think it was in the 5th century or so, 400s. And that was the Bible that the church used. Vulgates means vulgar, which means common, so it's common Latin. This is the Bible of choice. And interestingly, 
the Roman Catholic Church come the 1500s wasn't super opposed to people translating the Bible into the language of other peoples, but they always wanted them to use the Latin Vulgate. So they wanted to use a translation in order to make another translation. So if the Bible's written in Greek and Hebrew, and Erasmus had just published the Greek New Testament, so scholars now had access to it again come the time of the Reformation. And the Latin Vulgate is a translation of that. Why do you think the Roman Catholic Church would want, let's say, an English translation to come from the Latin Vulgate, not the Greek and Hebrew? Yeah. The Pope have control over the Latin Vulgate? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And there were certain things that had, Jerome had mistranslated or poorly translated in the Latin Vulgate that actually buttressed Roman Catholic teaching. For instance, the word penance. The word penance appears in the Latin Vulgate to translate a Greek word which means repent. So you can see how this one little word, I mean, that had huge effect on the whole indulgence system. And there's no way the Pope wanted anybody to speak about repentance, because repentance is something you can do with God. But penance is something the church has control over. And that affects the whole economic structure of the church. Well, King Henry decides that he's not going to go that route. And he wants the Bible published in English. And he will allow it to be translated from Greek and Hebrew. Now, the Hebrew manuscripts at the time weren't super awesome. Because, well, Qumran hadn't been discovered yet. It just happened last century. Probably the oldest Hebrew Bibles they had in the 1500s were only from about the year 1000. So a thousand years removed from the time of Christ. And how many more centuries before that when these books were actually written? So we're, the Dead Sea Scrolls were really helpful in massively increasing the number of Hebrew manuscripts available that are available to modern scholars today. And that's why modern scholars today, if they do their job, can make much better translations every year than the ones done the previous year because we have more manuscripts, quality manuscripts at our disposal. So let's talk a little bit about the English Bibles, the early English Bibles, because this, this does have a pretty significant bearing on the Reformation. And then we're going to come back to Henry. So you've probably all heard of a guy named William Tyndale. Let me write some names down. We have William Tyndale. We have Miles Coverdale. And we have John Rogers. William Tyndale was a priest who had a burning passion to get the Bible into the hands of the English-speaking people. Here's a quote from him. He said, If God spares my life before many years pass, I will make it possible for a boy behind the plow to know more scripture than you do. Speaking to a fellow priest who didn't think it was a great idea, he said, I want to get it into the, into the hands of a kid that's behind the plow, a, a field hand. Now that 
that's like so part of modern missions. That was just totally an off-the-wall thought in the 1500s. In fact, jumping ahead, when Henry and later James got their English translation of the Bible, you could only read it if you were rich or in the bureaucratic noble class. They didn't want average people reading it because politics and state are intertwined. And if you read the Bible and acknowledge it to be the authority of God, and you saw things in politics that didn't line up, then your whole political situation is a mess, right? So it was reserved for people who had a vested interest in political stability. Very interesting. Sad, but interesting. So Tyndale begins translating, but bear in mind that Tyndale was maybe not fully Protestant, but more of the Protestant ilk. And there were some that didn't like the idea of an English translation. There was a lot of pressure and persecution on him. So he starts translating the Bible, but due to persecution, he has to flee to mainland Europe. So across the British Canal, and he's in mainland Europe, which is more liberal at this time, you might say, to Protestant ideas. He begins to work on translating the New Testament, parts of the Old Testament. He's shipping it across, publications of it into England. People are starting to get used to it. But by 1536, he's captured and burned at the stake. So he dies in 1536. And probably, maybe even a little ahead of Henry saying, go for it. So then we have Miles Coverdale. And he's also working on an English translation of the Bible, which really was, these two guys built off of Tyndale's work. So they take Tyndale's Bible, they're comparing it with some German translations, manuscripts they had at their disposal. He comes up with kind of a modified version of Tyndale's Bible. Then John Rogers, he now has access to Coverdale and Tyndale, so he comes up with an even better English translation of the Bible. And his, he didn't put his name on it. He was pretty smart. He didn't put his name on it because he was concerned about obviously being killed, but the king at the time likes this one, has this guy, whose work this guy used, edit John Rogers' Bible to make it even better, and what would you call, like if you were making up the, uh, a translation, a, a name for a translation that was like really great, what might you call it? Okay, the Great Bible. Very good, Glenn. Okay, so he calls this the Great Bible. And that now is circulating in England and is, has become the official version of the English church. Now, let's go back and talk more about Henry's life with his second wife, and so forth, and then we'll, we'll tie it back into some of our theological and historical considerations to do with the Protestant Reformation. So again, Henry VIII, he's reigning from 1509 to 1547, so he's right in the heat of the Protestant Reformation. 
So Catherine, she's off the scene. Now there's Anne. So Anne gets pregnant and has a daughter, but does not have a son. So he gets a little upset at that. He accuses her of adultery, and she's out on the chopping block, has her head chopped off. So a very nice guy. So this opens the door for him to marry another, a third wife called Jane Seymour. And Jane Seymour was also a lady-in-waiting to the lady-in-waiting that had replaced Catherine. So Jane Seymour uh, gets pregnant, and she bears him Edward VI, who would become the next king. Now, Anne, interestingly, had previously been pregnant with a son. But she miscarried when she was about 15 weeks along, maybe a little bit better than that. And she miscarried because Henry fell off his horse during a jousting match, was injured, and it, when she heard the news, she was shocked by it. She went to labor and delivered the child prematurely. So it's interesting how, in a certain way, you could say he was responsible for her not bearing him a son, but then he has her killed for it. That event is probably the explanation why he became even more tyrannical. He may have had brain damage. He may have had ongoing pain. In his later years, he became quite obese. He had more like a 58-size waist, pant or belt. Uh, he had to be moved around by machines at the time and just wasn't a healthy guy at all. And that all, all stemmed back to having fallen off the horse. But he has to come up with a reason to have Anne executed, so he, he selects five guys, and he says, um, all of you have slept with my wife. Now, what makes it really weird is that he was concerned that one of her brothers might come back at him for killing his sister, the queen. So he also accuses the brother of having an affair with his sister. So he kind of gets them all in the room at the same time, and all five of the guys, including one of the brothers, they're all put to death for, for adultery and for incest. So you can see the political maneuvering. So she's killed in 1536. You can imagine there's a lot of women just lined up to want to take her place, right? <laughs> so now back to Jane. So Jane's wife number three, and now it's her turn. So Edward VI is born in 1537. But Jane, of course, wasn't put to death, but she died a few days later as a result of complications from childbirth. So uh, later, by the way, Edward VI would become king. So he's coronated when he's nine years old. And he's always a sickly kind of kid. So he dies when he's 15. So most of his reign... <clears throat> was under a group of nobles that were like filling in for him until he reached an age to make decisions. He did make some decisions that impacted the political and religious climate of England, but he, didn't, he wasn't around for too long. It was mostly those that were his handlers. One thing that's interesting about Edward VI, however, is officially he's the first Protestant king of England. So Henry 
establishes, Henry VIII establishes the Anglican Church, but Henry VIII is not a Protestant. He still believes in everything Roman Catholic. So it's the next generation now, now that is split. Some of his, well, he's only got three, three kids that survive, but um, one son's a Protestant, one daughter's a Protestant, one daughter's a Roman Catholic. Henry goes on to marry wife number four. And wife number four is a woman of the name of Anne of Cleves. So I think she's the one. I could have this mixed up, but I think she's the one. She's from mainland Europe. He's like, well, basically, what does she look like? So they send an artist over to paint her picture. Because in the cameras, the picture comes back. Yeah, she's a looker. Bring her over. So uh, he marries Anne of Cleves. But the marriage is annulled very quickly because they don't consummate the union. For whatever reason, I don't know. But they don't consummate the union. So then we're on to the next wife. So he, in, in 1540, he marries Catherine Howard. I think, he's around, I think he's around 49 at the time. She's 17. And she is beheaded two years later for actually committing adultery with two different dudes that were in the, uh, in the palace. that had, One of them she was previously kind of engaged to, and the other was like her lover. So she's dead at 18 or 19, and obviously bears no kids. So in 1543, he marries again, Catherine Parr. So I think this is wife's number six. Now, Catherine Parr is a widower twice over, She's an intelligent woman. She's politically savvy. She's obviously a little bit older. And she actually is reformed-minded. So she's more of like a hybrid Catholic Protestant. And among other things, softening his views towards Protestantism, she also encourages him to take two of his surviving daughters from his previous marriages, Mary and Elizabeth, who were older than Edward VI, and put them back into the line of succession under Edward VI. So the idea was, when Edward was born, he excluded them from the line of succession So because he wanted his son in power. And she's like, well, that's probably not a great idea, obviously knowing that Edward's kind of sick. Well, you should at least have your daughters in line. So the line of succession was Edward VI, then Mary, then Elizabeth I. So when Edward dies, and there's some dispute about this, he has some beef with his sisters, and he supposedly appoints his first cousin once removed to be the next queen. Now, there's some debate about whether or not she uh, actually was, whether that was legitimate or his advisors came out and said, hey, Jane's the new queen, but I think she ruled for like a week or two. And then uh, Mary basically says it's illegitimate. She gets an army together, they attack, and that's the end of Jane. And so now Mary really is the de facto next monarch of England and the head of the English church. So remember I said Edward was the first Protestant. His sister was more Catholic than the Pope. And she's the one that history often refers to as Bloody Mary. She reigned for five years. She had close to 300 Protestant reformers burned at the stake, including Thomas Cranmer. And her reign really is 
marked by uh, some pretty uh, terrible acts. But before we get to her, I want to kind of look at Edward VI's life a little bit more. So we have, um, just this doesn't get too confusing because we're kind of going back and forth. We have Henry VIII. We have uh, Edward VI. We have Bloody Mary. We have Elizabeth, the Virgin Queen, the first. Now, squeezed in between here is Jane, the question mark. And by the way, when this line ends, James the first, who I think was also known as James the Six. fourth or sixth Six of, of Scotland. So up in Scot, so he's actually a Scottish king. So he's James the sixth of Scotland. <clears throat> but because his mother was married to um, her first cousin, who was the next in line to Elizabeth, he reigns as James IV in Scotland for a while, but then the, the realms are united, and he becomes the king of Scotland and England. And this is the James that is uh, uh, influential in the King James Bible, right? So his, he actually uh, is taken from his mother when he's like one year old. She never sees him again. She's locked up because she was doing some political maneuvering that people didn't like. So she's locked up, and James I is raised by basically co-regents that are ruling on his behalf. There's like four of them in a row, and finally he comes of age. And he, I think he's one of the longest reigning kings of 50-something years, I think, he reigned for. But that's a different house. So this is one house. These are the Tudors. This is a different house. So back to Edward the, the Sixth. So he reigns from 1547 to 1553. So 1547 to 1553, but keep in mind he's nine here. So he's not doing a whole lot of reigning. So what happened was Protestant sympathizers composed the majority of Edward's advisors. Protestant sympathizers. Why were they sympathizers to Protestantism? Because they didn't like the Pope. So these guys were not motivated. The Anglican Church was not started on conviction, issues of conviction, like the Lutherans were, the Anabaptists were, the Reformers were. It was started on matters of politics. So during that time, some additional reforms took place. Priests were allowed to marry. So the celibacy rules, those are gone. Priests are now allowed to marry. And Cramner's common book of prayer replaces the Latin mass. So up to this point in time, we have Latin mass still being used in England. But Cramner writes the common book of prayer, which regulates and defines how your service is going to go. And now people are able to come to church and hear it in their own language. And of course, you can understand like the educational curve would have gone up quite a bit. And Cramner now in 1553, so this would have been the final year of Edward VI's reign, 
produces something called the 42 articles. So the 42 articles of the church. And he, he essentially lays out matters of doctrine that are going to be unique to the Roman Catholic, or sorry, to the Anglican Church. So now we have, not under Henry VIII, but under Edward VI, as a result of Cramner's work, the, uh, new theology. So the, the English church now has its own theological grid. And if you read the articles, they sound very Protestant. We'll comment on some of those later, but they sound very, very Protestant. So there's 10 articles and there's 40 uh, two articles. Ten had been published, by the way, in 1536, but this was an extensive update and an addition bringing it up to 42, which would later be reduced down to 39, which is still part of the uh, <coughs> Anglican Church today. So here are some things that uh, would have been part of that that came out of the ten articles. There would have been an emphasis on the authority of Scripture, statements on the authority of Scripture, the ecumenical councils of the church, or the creeds of the church, the Nicene Creed, the Apostolic Creed, those kind of things. The first four ecumenical councils of the early church, they were defining matters of Trinitarianism and the two natures of Christ and all that stuff that's associated with historic orthodoxy. Uh, they uh, emphasized the necessity of baptism for salvation, even in infants. Uh, it says in Article 2 that infants ought to be baptized and later that... Uh, dying in infancy, they shall undoubtedly be saved thereby and else not. And they also speak out against the Anabaptists and the Pelagians as detestable heresies. So one of the things that the Anglican Church kept is baptismal regeneration from the Catholic Church. They believed in the sacrament of penance with confession and absolution. Those were necessary. Again, these are, the, these are from the early 10. They're later going to be changed yet. They believe that Christ's real presence was in the body and the blood, in the, uh, in the bread and the wine in the form of uh, his body and blood. They believed in justification by faith, but that good works, charity, obedience was also tied to that. They were mostly opposed to the use of images in churches. They felt that honoring the saints and the Virgin Mary was important. You can still pray to the saints. And that um, a lot of the holidays or ceremonial vestments that clergy wore, those were all still good. And they were okay with purgatory, but they made purgatory a non-important doctrine. So that's the 10 articles. So some changes from the Roman Catholic Church. Those 10 articles go through more renovations in the 42 later are reduced for political reasons to the 39. So those are some things that happened during the very short reign of, and the very short life of a king who died when he was 15 years old, essentially a grade 10 student, Edward VI. So now we have Mary. While she's bloody, she's probably the only English monarch in the 1500s that actually believes in her faith. So she's motivated by conviction. She doesn't hold our views, but she is motivated by conviction. She was a pious woman. She was genuinely trying to defend her Catholic faith. Her Protestant family members really were politically motivated. 
So she reigns from 1553 to 1558, so five years. Um, back to Parr, the final wife of Henry VIII. The reason why Mary goes on the throne is because Catherine Parr advocated for her to be included back in the succession. So that's where that ties in. Now this is significant because when Mary becomes queen, she basically undoes and crush, crushes, and it's pretty effective at it, Protestantism, not totally, but crushes it down in uh, England. And again, back across the canal, people are fleeing to Europe because Western Europe was very Protestant. So we're talking the Netherlands, Germany, Denmark leaning in that direction. Um, a lot more opportunities there to be Protestant. And uh, as I mentioned to you earlier, she has several burned, almost 300. She marries Philip of Spain. I don't think she ever met him. The, she might have, I'm not really sure, but the, basically the wedding took place by proxy. She never went there, he never came to her. So Spain is a very Catholic country, right? So she's very Catholic. So she marries, uh, uh, as her concert, consort, a um, very Catholic guy from a Catholic country. But this did not do win her any brownie points politically. Because here's this queen out burning the Protestants. Here's this queen literally in bed with the Catholics. And in the eyes of the English at the time, she's basically betraying them. So even though she was bloody, and that was the title given to her, her reign actually served to drive the final nail in the coffin of the Roman Catholic Church in England. So she really is the final, true Roman Catholic monarch. And that just kind of opens the gateway then for Protestantism in its Anglican form to flourish in uh, England. So now we come to Elizabeth. So Elizabeth <coughs> is an interesting woman. How many of you have seen the movie, uh, is it called Elizabeth? Elizabeth yeah. or there's two of them, right? The first. Numerous versions. Okay, I just want Jen Carb to stand up for a second. Okay. I just want you to stand up. So that's basically what Elizabeth looked like. Okay. So if you look at all the, the pictures and it's like the red hair, kind of like hard to get along with, you know, that, that kind of thing, right? Probably gluten-free. I don't know. But. <laughs> Okay, so we have uh, Elizabeth. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get in trouble for that later on, I'm sure. But. So Elizabeth comes to the throne, and um, she's considered hot-tempered, bold. Um, and it's really under her that the Anglican Church becomes its present-day mixture of Roman Catholic and Protestantism. She would what, what would be called a liberal. So go ahead. How did uh, Mary's reign end? I think she died. She died of an illness. Yeah. yeah. So, but very disappointed because it wasn't like immediate. She had a little bit of time to think about it. Very disappointed that her reforms weren't working. Yeah. So um, Elizabeth comes to the throne and she's kind of liberal. She's sort of like a live and let live. Maybe not quite like that, but 
more of a each to his own, and she, she allows Protestantism to flourish. There's fewer Roman Catholics kicking around at the time because of her older sister Mary's actions. She also makes some reforms. So instead of calling herself the supreme head of the church, she's like, oh, I'm going to be a little softer about it. She goes with supreme governor, and this just wins a lot of brownie points with the church. And Anglicanism then becomes what many Europeans know as the middle way. It's like the, the, the dotted line between, or the, maybe not the dotted line. I'll ah, call it the dotted line. The dotted line between Roman Catholicism in one lane and Protestantism in the other. It's kind of the middle way. Best of both worlds, so to speak. The 42 articles are reviewed and reduced to 39 articles in 1563. Now, she is the queen known as the Virgin Queen. And there's kind of a sad background to that. Many people believe that she was sexually abused as a child. Um, so Catherine Parr, uh, her, so her mother would have been Anne of Boilin, I believe. And several queens later, we have Catherine Parr. So Elizabeth goes to live with Catherine Parr and her fourth husband. And her fourth husband would come into Elizabeth's room at night and tickle her and play around her and all that kind of stuff and probably sexually molest her. He committed his, his uh, undergarments. And sickeningly, Catherine would often participate in that in some way, shape, or form. And we know this because of the historical records of her ladies-in-waiting that thought it were thought it was disgusting and kept trying to kick them out. And a history indicates that, um, as with the many victims of sexual abuse, that Elizabeth didn't quite know what to think about that. She kind of liked this guy, but it probably affected her sexuality for the rest of her life because she was abused like 14 years of age and she never married. She was in love later in life with a man that was in the court and there was some consideration giving to, given to marrying him, but ultimately she, she remained the virgin queen and died childless. And because Henry VIII's line then died with her, that's where the Scottish king, who'd been ruling in Scotland for seven or eight years, was duly appointed. He wasn't appointed. He was rightfully the king, the next in line to the English throne and to the Spanish throne, or the uh, Scottish throne. Um, she, however, is somewhat of a syncretist, you could call that, and that it's a little bit of each. So what happens then is now that, now that England is more open to religious dialogue, again, people that had went across the channel into Europe come back, and uh, Protestants, Protestants who'd been influenced by who? People who are Protestant by conviction. Right? So they're hanging around with Anabaptists, Reformers, uh, Calvinists, Lutherans. They come back, and while they appreciate the opportunities, it's not strong enough. So that those people eventually become the Puritans. So the Puritans really are the first English Reformers that start to reform the church in England based upon convictional grounds. Now, most, a, a huge majority of them end up leaving to colonize 
North America. So a lot of the Puritans didn't stick around, so the Church of England is kind of maybe not the place for them. A lot of you know, the, the, the pilgrims we talk about, those are the descendants of the, the Puritans who rose up during that period of time. So the foundation is laid in England now for other groups to rise. So later groups that came out of the Church of England as a result of the Puritans, like the more immediate groups would be the Baptists. So by the 1600s, the Baptists, who were a group in England and close to England in the Netherlands. They're kind of going back and forth. There's dispute about whether the First Baptist Church is in England or the Netherlands. But there's, there's traffic back and forth. That the Baptists come up in the early uh, 1600s. And then we have the Congregationalists. Now, Congregationalists aren't, that's not a common denomination anymore because the Congregationalists and the Methodists merged in Canada to become the United Church years ago. But if you went back 100 years, there was a lot of Congregational churches. So the Congregationalists and the Episcopalians, which basically are uh, nowadays, like in the U.S., those basically are the Anglicans. And then if you fast forward another century or two, then you have um, the Brethren and the Methodists as like the next tier out of uh, groups that kind of came out of England or that area as a result of the, the English church the Reformations under Henry VIII. So even though Henry VIII was obviously a disgusting person and his motivations weren't right, within a hundred years, his break from Rome did give rise to some pretty awesome groups of people that were reformed uh, along the line of personal convictions that also spoke English and were involved in uh, uh, the founding of the United States of America and Canada and so forth and so on. Any questions about that period? Otherwise, we're going to move into the Catholic Counter-Reformation. Thoughts about that or things you want to add to it? Okay, let's do a show of hands. How many of you grew up Lutheran? Nobody? My dad's side was Lutheran. Okay. I think originally, First church I went to was Lutheran. Okay. I was the You're just a little guy. I was just a little guy. Jesus never came in. So. Okay. Okay. Good. Yeah. Did you get baptized as a baby? No. Okay. No. It's good if you had, because then you're safe either way. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, how many of you grew up reformed or in a, like a reformed church? Church that had reformed in the name. CRCers, free reform, Anabaptists. Okay, how about uh, Anglicans? What Anglicans? Okay. How about Roman Catholic? How about some of those denominations that came out of the English Church? So Baptist, Congregationalist, Brethren. Okay, quite a few. Okay. How many of you grew up Muslim? Okay. Atheist? <laughs> nothingness? Okay, nothingness? Okay. All right, just interesting to see. So the Catholic Counter-Reformation. Now, we call it the Catholic Counter-Reformation. The Catholics would want to call it the Catholic Revival, which is fine. It's fine. Um, doesn't matter to me what you want to call it. It's a revival. It's a reformation. Same thing. So here are some factors. We're not going to spend a ton of time on this, but in the 
1500s, there was obviously an awareness that the Roman Catholic Church was losing territory, was losing people, was losing grounds on like all fronts. There was a time when uh, the Protestants were all over Europe. So several factors led to a reformation within the Catholic Church. And some of it, just like in England, was political. And some of it was convictional. So we're going to talk about both of those things. Sometimes we, we tend to think, oh, it's only people in our faith that have convictions. People of all faiths that have convictions on things. And that's why you've got to be careful about your convictions. Because you can think, well, they're my convictions, so they must be from the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> and your convictions may or may not be from the Holy Spirit. So convictions are always filtered through the grid of Scripture, right? And when we're, we're, when we're in a community of faith and we allow other people to challenge our thinking, that's another way that God can say, yeah, your convictions are wrong. Because I can think of things I used to be convicted about that I, I think are ridiculous nowadays. So, you know, your convictions could be because of heartburn. Um, your convictions could be because of your personality. There's a lot of reasons why people have convictions that may not be accurate. So there's convictions among Roman Catholics, too, and there's convictions among Protestants that may not, may not be true. Here's some factors. There's many, but I'm just going to give you a couple. The Council of Trent. I've alluded to this, but I wanted to talk about it a little bit more tonight. The Council of Trent was not a weekend conference. So it wasn't like vertical church conference, okay? The Council of Trent was a series of conferences among Catholic cardinals and people in the upper echelons of the church that took place from 1545 right through to 1563. So almost 20 years. And the Council of Trent, held at Trent, was basically accomplished two things. Two main things. It provided clarity. Well, there's more than, more than two. So it provided clarity on Roman doctrine. Didn't really change doctrine. But first class we talked about how so many priests prior to the Reformation were illiterate. They had no idea what they were doing. So the, the, the level of knowledge that the average Roman Catholic would have had about Roman Catholicism was almost nothing. They almost knew nothing. So Trent served to provide clarity in that 20-year period and thereafter on what the Catholic Church actually believed. Then it contained several declarations against... Protestantism. Nothing at Trent was favorable towards Protestantism. So there was no, oh, well, yeah, they're right about this, but here's where they're wrong. Everything was bad. And if you've read uh, Galatians chapter 1, verse 8, it says, uh, let anyone who preaches a gospel other than the one we delivered to you be eternally accursed. So anathema. Literally be damned. So one of the declarations against the Protestants was that anybody that preaches justification by faith alone is 100 times damned. So that's a pretty significant one. Never revoked, by the way. Is that, is that like written in like their... In the documents from Trent. Yeah. 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 
I mean, there's a lot of paperwork coming out of track. And then we have the Apocrypha is affirmed as canon. So it's now canon. So canon is the word we use for the process of recognizing or affirming God's word. So canonization took place in the 4th century for Genesis to Revelation, where they were, they were acknowledged by the church as God's word. The Apocrypha had always been around. The books written between Malachi and Matthew, or Malachi and Mark, because uh, Mark's written before Matthew. But uh, the Deuteroapocrypha, these, or these are called sometimes the Deuterocanon. They were like quasi-canon, but now they were affirmed as God's word. So all those books that you see in the Apocrypha, those were affirmed. And um, there's, there's a lot of uh, results from that. But before I get there, I want to talk about a, seven ma a, a second major factor. So this is kind of like major factor number one. Major factor number two, before we talk about results, is the Jesuits. So, a man by the name of Ignatius Loyola, a lot of Catholic schools named after him. He established, uh, he, he lived from 1491 to 1556. 1491 to 1556, also right in that period of time. He was a Spanish nobleman, fought as a soldier, when the Reformation was happening, he was off fighting as a soldier. He came back. He's wounded. So he takes a cannonball to a leg. Blows his leg apart. So he's in the hospital. Hospitals were always run by Christians. Hospitals were a Christian idea. Christians invented hospitals. And the nurses were nuns. So I need something to read. Well, we have limited options. Would you like to read this book about Jesus or this book about Jesus? So... So he starts reading Christian books, and he goes through a conversion. He considers himself converted to Catholicism on a convictional level. He returns to Spain, and he casts off his nobility, and he becomes a monk. And he is, like, totally in. Hardcore into fasting and prayer and aestheticism and, like, the stereotypical monk that really believes in his stuff. This guy is like over the top. Now he's also a scholar, so he's studying at universities in that period of time, and he meets a guy by the name of Francis Xavier. Probably a few Catholic schools named their fame too. And those two guys and another friend, they form a reformed movement called the Jesuits, also known as the Society of Jesus in 1539. There's a lot to be said. You can study a lot about the Jesuits. But they were Roman Catholics with conviction. Not the political Roman Catholic. So the, the Pope was a political Roman Catholic. Henry VIII was a political Roman Catholic. Edward VI was a political Protestant. These guys were like convictional Catholics. So they stressed prayer, reading, and mental meditation upon scripture and Christian works and all that. And they started sending missionaries. So here's some key things that the Jesuits did, which Protestants actually learned from, from them. They sent out missionaries 
But the Roman Catholic Church wasn't doing missionary work. If you wanted to convert a country, you'd send in an army. Right? That's how you did it during the Crusades. You just send in an army. Church and state, it's together. You conquer the state. This is your new faith. But the Jesuits sent out missionaries, South America, North America, Europe, all over the place, sent out missionaries. And because of guys like Loyola and Xavier, they were also scholars and well-educated, there was a scholarly bent to the Jesuits. So those are the guys that founded like the early colleges and seminaries, the Catholic colleges and seminaries, which was huge, hugely helpful for the Roman Catholic Church because now they could train their priests and so the level of knowledge of all the stuff coming out of Trent now is accessible to the priests. So again, it's not that Trent really added too much to Roman Catholic doctrine, but it brought it back to the forefront. The Jesuits then took it, created institutions to disseminate it, and had passion behind it. So Europe, which is essentially going toward Protestantism, is sucked back into the Roman Catholic Church, and it's basically the top western third of Europe which stays Protestant and is still Protestant today, and that's the map. So you, you have the Germany, Netherlands, England, those are like the, that section of Europe, it's a geography thing. Those are like the Protestant countries up into some of the Scandinavian countries, but everything else pretty much goes Roman Catholic or Eastern Orthodox into Russia, right? And it's really because of the Jesuits that pull back on the, 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 the rein, so to speak, for the, the movement of um, uh, Protestantism. So let me just comment on two, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you some of the results, but I just want to make two, two comments which I think we need to be thinking about if we're interested in the propagation of our faith. There's two things that brought about the Protestant Reformation and there's two things that brought about the Catholic Counter-Reformation. Conviction and education. That is hugely helpful for us to understand. In the church, if you just go for conviction but you don't educate, you end up with emotionalism or sentimentalism. If you just educate, you end up with rationalism, legalism, you end up with religion. But if you can instill within your people because you have it in you, knowledge of the truth and conviction, you can change the world. It happened through the Protestants and it happened through the Roman Catholics. It happened with Islam. It happened through Buddha. So we're not denying the sovereignty of God, but the reality is in this world that we live in, God uses conviction and he uses knowledge. The devil uses conviction and he uses knowledge. So we want to just make sure that in our church, in our churches, that we have conviction and we also educate people well and we don't miss one or the other. And at the beginning of every movement that, that cuts into darkness or brings darkness, you will always see those two things present. So this is where history is not just some stale stuff from the past, 
But understanding all these details affects our life in the present. And it makes a difference. Is that helpful? Hope it is. Here's some results from the Catholic Counter-Reformation. They did successfully create better church structures to mitigate against abuse. So prior to the Reformation, oh, you want to buy the cardinalship? Show me your money. You want to become the bishop over here? Show me your money. Oh, you want me to sell you that diocese up north, even though you've never been there and never will go there? Show me your money. So the whole system was ridiculously corrupt. What Trent did in the Counter-Reformation, not a you never eradicate corruption, but hugely reduced it. Got, away, got, got the Catholic Church out of a lot of that. Secondly, it served to reinforce the sacraments. Because now they, they had a side to fight. So it reinforced the sacraments. And that tenacity toward sacramentalism is still seen in many churches today. Even in the Anglican Church, tenaciously sacramental. I remember being in a doctoral class years ago, and there was a there was a Lutheran, there was an Anglican, there was a Convention Baptist, there was me, and there was a the, the professor was a Presbyterian, and uh, we were yakking away. And my Anglican buddy, he says, "You know, I'd, I'd probably like to come to your church." And like you, I only get twelve minutes to preach my church, you get 45 or 50, but that would be different, something to get used to. There's only one little thing I would make different if I came to your church. I would just kind of kind of start at the back of the room, I'd just kind of wheel my altar up the aisle. Every week, I'd kind of turn it around, and I'd serve the Eucharist to people. Because he knew that we did that every week. And for him, that was just unimaginable. Highly sacramental. You're accessing God's grace through the sacrament, so you have to have it like all the time. So those, that, the, the Protestant, or the, the Counter-Reformation instilled that deeply in the Catholic Church, and it spilled over into the Anglican Church and other churches as well. Religious orders were formed. So there had been some before that, but there was an explosion of religious orders like the Jesuits. And I don't even understand all these orders, but I've known Catholic priests that are like part of different orders and it, th these are all tied to like historical movements. A spiritual renewal was encouraged. So believing what you believe in the level of conviction was encouraged. Returning to ancient practices of prayer and fasting and biblical reflection came about as a result of the Protestant Reformation. As in uh, the Catholic Counter-Reformation, better training for priests through seminaries. So now you have an educated clergy. And you know all the vestments, collars, and um, black shirts, and all that kind of stuff that a lot of clerics wear today, especially in the Roman Catholic Church? That wouldn't have been around prior to the Reformation. Prior to the Reformation, the image of the village monk with the brown, crummy-looking robe on was probably a little more accurate. But... Those clerical vestments, originally a lot of them were academic wear. Those are the kind of things you'd wear in university as you're studying for your doctorate or your master's degree or whatever. And so as the clergy became more tied to the academy, the garb that they would wear in the academy became the garb that they would wear in their parishes. 
So it, it actually speaks of their high level of education. And that is, it's interesting because even today, in most Protestant, in Catholic and in Anglican churches, the average level of education among clergymen far exceeds almost any other occupation outside of medicine. So they typically, to qualify for ordination in most high church denominations, you have to have seven years of post-secondary schooling. Six to seven, because that's how long it would take for you to typically earn what they used to call the Bachelor of Divinity, which is now the Master of Divinity. So there, and that kind of is a residual effect in the Reformation. Clerics have to be educated. It's like almost like an overreaction to they're a clueless bunch of illiterate dolts. And, and now they're these educated, sophisticated scholars in the university. Missionary zeal in place of assuming everyone was Roman Catholic. For centuries, the Roman Catholic Church could ride on uh, something very simple. It's called giving birth. If the whole country was Catholic, you just keep giving birth, and the next generation will be Catholic. We don't need to do missions. But now that there's competition from Protestants, we have to actually do our job. I'm not hugely into competition, but I will say this. In a fallen world, competition between churches keeps us on our toes. It really does. Like if everybody in the city already believed what we believe, I can guarantee you our level of fervency or strategic planning or giving or serving would be greatly reduced. But we know there's people around us that are going to hell. There's people around us of false religions. There's people around us that don't get it. So the fact that we have competition, so to speak, actually feeds into missionary zeal. Political reforms and impacts, as you can imagine, huge pluses, huge negatives uh, from the Catholic Reformation, just like in the Protestant Reformation. Most of Europe has won back to the Roman Catholic Church, but as I mentioned, top third, top corner remains uh, very, very much uh, Protestant. Ultimately, a stalemate was reached. And because of that, Catholics and Protestants haven't really been going to war for several centuries. They just kind of know there's Catholics around, there's Protestants around. We disagree, but uh, the lines are clearly drawn and a stalemate has been reached. Let me just uh, end tonight by pointing out four huge differences between Protestantism as a whole, and Roman Catholicism. Three, three main differences. So, faith alone. So this is the Protestant answer. This is the Catholic answer. So faith alone. One of the rallying cries of the Protestant Reformation was sola fide. Sola fide. It's a Latin for faith alone. Now, obviously that can be an abused doctrine. Because you can say, oh, it's just faith alone. I can do whatever I want. That's not what it's intended to say. 
faith alone is intended to speak to how a person is born again. It's not intended to speak to the issue of sanctification. Because a good Protestant says, oh, faith and works are part of sanctification. But when it comes to justification, it's faith alone. But admittedly, the Catholic Church would hear Protestants saying, oh, what you're saying is you just have to have faith and you can live however you want. So the Catholic response was good works are necessary. And they would apply that to sanctification, as we call it, but also as a display of justification, even though justification comes as a result of what you could call a work in the Roman Catholic Church, namely the rite of baptism. The Protestants emphasized grace alone. Sola. Um, I think it's spelled like that. Sola gratia. And again, speaking to the issue of justification. That God looks your way, not because, oh, you're a good little boy, or you're very religious, but God just demonstrates his grace toward you. Every Protestant believed that. It's not even disputed. All of them believe that. God looked to you because of his grace. And Roman Catholics emphasized grace plus human cooperation. Now, admittedly, a lot of Protestants have fallen back into that. But early Protestants always understood that um, God's grace was the fuel, the spark that brought about spiritual regeneration. Human cooperation really is, again, a sanctification issue. And then scripture alone. Sola Scriptura. And this is a marked difference because it affects the two above it and everything else you ever want to talk about. The Catholic Church, popes, bishops, plus Bible are your source of authority. So out of that, then, of course, you have Christ alone as the one who alone provided propitiation for our sins. These are kind of the, these are the three, um, the, the three baseline ones. It's source of authority. Where, so what's the source of authority? That's the bottom one. What's the source of salvation? And what's the means of accepting it? That's really what Protestants hammered home. And all three groups, including the Anglicans when they finally got around to it, would agree with that too. So by the way, I didn't get into this, but the 39 articles of the Anglican Church would be along these lines. There's some other things in there that may make other 
Protestants uncomfortable. And obviously we know the Anglican Church gets fractured. There's totally liberal Anglicans ordained and I mean the the uh, uh, the Episcopal, one of the Episcopal bishops, um, I don't know, current guy, but the last couple Episcopal bishops in the U.S. have been pro-abortion, pro-same-sex marriage, all that kind of stuff. So obviously not scripture alone. But um, these are like the key things that differentiated the early Catholics, or the, Medi the Protestant Reformation Catholics from the Reformation Protestants. And really really important for us to understand that those are beliefs that still stand today. So we can talk about a lot of historical figures, they're dead. We can talk about a lot of bad moves that were made back in the day, bad personalities, but this hasn't changed. So the answers to these questions remain the same today in the Roman Catholic Church and classic Protestant churches. So any comments or questions about, about that? And the Counter-Reformation really just served to reinforce these things. It didn't change any of them. It just reinforced it, in fact. With Roman Catholic authority, is there something else called tradition that's followed? Yeah, so tradition is what you would call like the collective pronouncements of the popes and bishops over the centuries. So you got you got a lot of popes, right? You got a lot of bishops. You got a lot of councils. You got a lot of decisions that have been made. You collect all those up. That's what you would call your traditions. But it's not just the things you do. Like we often think of traditions as activities we engage in that we've always engaged in. But when we use the word traditions in terms of source of authority, we're talking about papal pronouncements, all those kinds of things that add up. The greatest challenge to a thinking Catholic today is trying to sort out the fact that hundreds of them contradict each other because different popes <clears throat> overrule others or publish things that are indirect. I mean, you've seen it in your own lifetime, right? Benedict is, a, is extremely different in his beliefs on several things in Francis. And John Paul II is probably somewhere between them, but... Benedict was a conservative, Francis is a liberal. And there's very different views. And everyone in this room is old enough to know that. Francis has only been in power for a few years. But his views on things are obviously much softer than Benedict. But both of them supposedly are directly representing the will of Christ. Protestants have it easier because we've locked it down and put a cover on it. So there's a, there's, there are differences of interpretation, but there's no difference in terms of source of authority, unless you are then a liberal Protestant that doesn't you know, hold to um, any of this stuff. And there's people that would call themselves, probably call themselves Protestant, that literally have dismantled every single historic Christian doctrine. So you have like the metropolitan community churches, the, the LGBT whatever church, the gay churches. People are born good. There's multiple paths to God. Issues of sexuality are wide open. I mean, every uh, God is called by different names. Like every single doctrine has been dismantled top to bottom. 
but they would still kind of function almost like a high church Anglican church, for example, or a liturgical church. John? I know that uh, there are some very highly regarded people in the Anglican church, like N.T. Wright. Mm. Um, it seems hard for me to believe that someone as intelligent as that might be so far removed from what we would consider biblical truth, although maybe I'm just showing my bias. But has there been any sort of modern attempt to reconcile with uh, less than uh, honorable uh, means by which the Anglican Church came about? Um, well, no, because I think people just recognize that that was, that was the historical reality of the day, and even though it was bad, people benefited from it. Now, speaking of folk guys like N.T. Wright or other Michael Green or other guys that have come out or, or, or who are in the, Roman, or the Anglican Church, the Anglican Church has awesome, conservative, born-again, Bible-believing, Christians and theologians and churches in it today and renewal movements within the Anglican church and then absolutely left of left, liberal beyond belief, really not even Christian in my view anymore, people in the Anglican communion. And uh, obviously one of the, 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 the turning points in the last several years where several Canadian Anglican churches have broken away is, is over the whole same-sex marriage issue. But really, the, the, issue, the issue doesn't start with debating same-sex. The issue starts with authority. So as soon as you... So let's say you're like, well, I don't know if the Bible is true. Then don't even bother being a Christian. Just telling you. Like, just go to the logical conclusion, right? Don't even bother. If the Bible's not true, I'm not a Christian starting tomorrow. I just have no interest in following a fairy tale. If, you, if you're going to stay within a consistent system, you have to have a consistent source of authority. And it starts with the Word of God. Now, I know that's a pragmatic reason, but we're just having that conversation right now. Any denomination, any Christian, any group, anywhere, at any point in history, that fails to acknowledge the, that Scripture is the final authority on matters of faith and practice is dead in the water. Either in that generation or a couple hundred years later, they're dead in the water. So the problem with the Anglican Church is not the same-sex issue. The guys, I would just say kindly, that the battle should have been fought a long time earlier on source of authority, not waited till it came to such a ridiculous conclusion that men can marry men and women can marry women, which is not found in any historic Christian denomination or movement anywhere up till this century. So we talk about you know unapologetic preaching or the inerrancy and authority of God's word. We believe that to be true. But I'm just telling you, if you're like, oh, I'm not really sure that's true, then you might as well just stop being a Christian now. Because that will lead you away from any true source of authority, and then you'll start bringing all kinds of other things in. And you can't reconcile a little bit from out there and a little bit from here and a little bit from in here. It won't work. It will clash. It will conflict over time. And the Roman Catholic Church is hung on by a string at different points in history because of, again, if you were just looking at it from like a marketing perspective, 
okay, should I buy into this business or this business? Should I become a Catholic or a Protestant? A person who's analyzing the structure of the Roman Catholic Church from a business perspective would see they have a problem. And the biggest problem is they do not have a consistent source of authority. A Bible teaching church has a consistent source of authority. This is always like a moving. The source of authority is always moving. It's whoever's wearing the pointed hat and interpreting scripture however they want. And what what is uh, is actually true of most Roman Catholics, and I can say this because I went to a Catholic school, I went to a Catholic university, I know lots of Catholics. I, I could very quickly debate any Catholic who would deny this. It wouldn't take me very long to prove it. So I'm going to make a statement that may seem unkind, but I don't think it is. I think it's true. Because they have two sources of authority, and the one is more in the moment, which is tradition, that trumps the Bible over and over again. So Catholics might say, well, the tradition and scripture on par, or for the vast majority of Catholics, including clergy, tradition is always above it, because that's in the moment. That's like the news of the day. And the proof is in that when you talk to most Roman Catholic priests, they don't study the Bible. They, they haven't studied it. They don't understand it. I can guarantee that most, most people in grade 12 in this church know more about the Bible than most Roman Catholic priests do. Even their educational system is bent against. You study philosophy of religion, you study philosophy of language, you study communication, you study pastoral care, you study all these peripheral things, but you don't actually learn to exposit scripture. It's very rare to see an, a Catholic priest exposit scripture. They'll read it, but they use it as a springboard into a Christian topic, but they don't actually open up the Bible and say, thus says the Lord. And sadly, a lot of Protestants have slipped into that mode today, too. They don't believe in the power of God's word. We've got to market it. And um, those churches will eventually fail. They may grow big and weighty for a while, but they will eventually fail. But they're out there. You know, Joel Osteen is the, the poster boy for that. But he's not the only guy. Don't just shoot it shoot all your bullets at him. There's a lot of people like that up there. But that is his, that's his declared mode of operation. It's not, if you're offended by it, you're, just, you're offended by the facts. Because he would tell you that. That's not his thing. But then it leads to just an openness on so much. So. One more question? Yeah, John? Uh, going forward a couple hundred years, I'm wondering about the, uh, the effects of the American Revolution versus the French Revolution. And it's like the American founders were influenced highly by the Puritans, right? Mm -hmm. And France was highly Catholic mm -hmm. at the time before the French Revolution. Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering if the, just to spitball strong emphasis on a closed authority, a closed source of authority in the English or American revolution contributed to the positive and successful results of the American revolution versus an open uh, 
source of authority in France contributed to the negative aspects of the French Revolution? Yeah, the circumstances in France were a full-blown em embracing of the Enlightenment, which was really opposed to objective authority. It was, it was influenced by rationalism, but the emphasis was upon the source of authority is you. Very highly humanistic. The source of authority is you. And that, that worldview is, is dominant in North America, but it's been dominant for longer in Europe. And you know, more, there's, there's definitely more of an emphasis on conviction and biblical faith among those that found it, if you want to call it that, at least the, the aristocrats. There's a lot of people that founded the US that aren't called founding fathers. They're just some guy in a field planting corn trying to survive another winter. So they were founding fathers too, but the guys that we know publicly, there was more of an emphasis on scripture, word of God. But again, among them, there were people that were not born again believers. They were deists. They believed in the existence of God. God had wound up the world and walked away from it. Um, so there, there's religious, there's definitely religious undercurrents in every historic revolution or reformation. But the reality is, in the United States of America at least, there was more of a biblical understanding of things that influenced either immediately or down the road issues of human rights or separation of church and state. But there's all, there, there was always politics mixed into that too, and economics, and wanting to be free from tyrants in England, and on and on and on. So many different factors that played a role. I thought you were going to say something. I was starting to smile because I thought you were going to say, you think the emphasis on the Bible as authority is what led the Americans to install their constitution as the 67th book of their Bible. <laughs> I thought that's the direction. Yeah. 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 Yeah.